How many of you know what a linear equation is? Have you ever heard of a linear equation, anyone? Some of you have, yeah, actually, look at this, all the... A linear equation is the equation of any straight line, and it can be written like this, it looks like this. Y equals mx plus b. Maybe you've seen it, y equals mx plus b. Now, what you see here is the slope-intercept equation, okay? This is the slope-intercept equation of a line. And in this equation, the m represents the slope of the line, and the b that you see here is the y-intercept, or it's the point at which the line crosses the y-axis. Now, unless you are currently enrolled in an algebra class, and in fact, if you're anything like me, you may be enrolled in an algebra class and still not know anything about this. Does that make sense? You look at this and you have no idea what it means. You have no idea how to use it. You have no idea how it works. And I just want to tell you that when I was in high school, just a couple of years ago, when I, when I was in high school, my algebra teacher gave his very best effort to help me understand this concept, this y equals mx plus b. He wanted me to understand this principle. He was a great teacher. He was really committed to what he did. He was very passionate about mathematics. And to a certain degree, he was very successful at teaching me the principle of the slope-intercept equation. And what I mean by that was, he was successful to the extent that when I was tested on this particular unit of algebra, I was able to plug in the right numbers into the right places, and I got a passing grade at the end of the unit. Right? Now I want to fast forward to just a few years ago. So fast forward to, from high school to just a few years ago. And after a few delays and distractions in my life, I had decided that I was going to finish my degree work. And one of the classes, if you can believe it, that was required of me to complete my degree work was algebra. And as I was going through this algebra class, once again, at a certain point, I came across the unit on linear equations. Right? So as I'm working on these linear equations, here it is, y equals mx plus b. And I looked at it, and I was sure that my high school teacher would probably be very disappointed if he saw the way that I was handling this section of my college class. He would have been really disappointed in my handling of y equals mx plus b, because I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. I had absolutely zero idea. So what I did was I decided I'm going to put in all the time, I'm going to put in all the effort, and I am going to force the slope-intercept equation back into my head one more time. I'm going to get it there one more time, and so that's what I did. And the good news is, by the end of that unit in college, I had plugged all the right numbers into all the right places, and I got a passing grade once again on that portion of my class at the college level as well. So I was really proud of myself. So now I'm going to fast forward to just about two weeks ago. <laughs> two weeks ago, when I came home from work, Maddie was sitting at the kitchen table. And as I walked in the door, Maddie said, Daddy, can you help me with my math? And I'm like, you know, yeah, no problem. I mean, how hard can ninth grade math be? So sure, no problem. And as I walked over to Maddie, I said, Maddie, what is it that you need help with? And do you have any idea what it was she was working on? 
y equals mx plus b. She was working on the slope-intercept formula. And I looked at that, and as soon as I saw it, I said, nope, you are on your own. And I turned around, <laughs> and I walked upstairs, and I closed my bedroom door behind me. I said, you're going to have to go in gold block, and you're going to have to find your math teacher, because I am done with slope-intercept. I am done with y equals mx plus b. Now, let me ask you, am I a bad dad? Because that's how I felt. Am I a bad dad? And the reason that I say that is, I mean, why in the world did I not just pass on all of this knowledge that I had taken into my head? Why didn't I just pass on to her the mathematical truth that I had taken in on all of these occasions? Why hadn't I done that? Why didn't I sit down with her and work through the concept of Y equals MX plus B? Why didn't I share with her all that I had learned? You see, over the years, I had endured hours and hours of instruction. I had endured hours of practice on this very formula. So why wouldn't I have just taken the time to sit down with my little girl whose heart was so hungry for mathematical knowledge and growth and explain it to her? I mean... When she asked me the question, I thought back to the right unit in algebra. I went back. I thought, okay, yeah, linear equations. I found that place in my memory bank, and I started to dig, and you know what I found out? There was nothing there. <laughs> I started digging, and I was starting to look for gold. I was looking for truth, but there was absolutely nothing there. You see, for years I had been saying, I am never going to need to know this truth ever again. I've studied it. I've gotten through this unit in math, and I'm never going to use this ever again. There is never a practical time where I will plug in Y equals MX plus B and have to use that knowledge. And now, after all of these years, I had finally found the place in life where I actually did need to use that knowledge. I needed to pass it on to my little girl who was hungry to learn mathematical truth. And I went there, and it was gone. Now, for all of you who may be new to us, our approach in teaching this Word of God and in our approach in teaching the Scripture at Root River Church is to take what we call an expository and a sequential approach to Scripture. So what we do is we begin at the very first verse of a particular book of the Bible and we work our way sequentially all the way through the end of the book. And what we do is we attempt to put the content of the book in its historical and grammatical context as we move forward so that we can make sure that we're drawing from the Word of God what the Holy Spirit intended when He inspired the human authors to write the Word of God. So we've been in the book of Ephesians now for about five weeks, and we've made it to verse 15 of chapter 1, which begins the portion of Scripture that we're actually going to take a look at this morning. But... As we made our way through chapter 1, in the first 14 verses, we have been attempting to understand some really amazing and some very deep truth, haven't we? Those of you who have been with us have been with us as we have struggled through some very deep truth. I mean, our minds and our faith have been stretched and built as we've begun to understand the great resources, the great riches of the resources that we have as we are in Christ. We found how incapable we are of understanding with our temporary minds the eternal mind and the character of God. We've attempted to begin to understand the inheritance of righteousness that's available to us in the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. We've done our very best in the book of Ephesians so far to understand how it could be that even though people like you and I, whose practice is often very sinful, are positionally right and are positionally pure before the Almighty Creator and Sustainer of the universe. He looks at us and He says, this one is perfectly pure, this one is perfectly blameless, and we've struggled to get our minds around that. 
And I've got to tell you that it's been very gratifying to me to hear many of you speak of how encouraged you have been and to hear many of you speak of how your faith has been strengthened as you've learned such great theological truth in the first few verses of the book of Ephesians. But as I was preparing our message for today, I learned that I have a lot of work to do. You see, to teach you the deep truth and to share with you the great resource available to you as you are in Christ is not enough. Do you know that? It's not enough for you to just hear that. And so this week, I felt challenged in my spirit as I was leading up to the time of preparation for our message this morning to begin a new habit, which I've decided will now be a part of my relationship with each and every single one of you as long as I'm privileged to teach you the Word of God here at Root River Church. And so I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 15, and you'll see what I mean. For this reason, he says, for what reason, Paul? Well, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. For this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I want to let every single one of you know right up front, I want you to know this, that I pray for you often. I call you out by name and I pray for you often. And just like Paul, I am thankful that you are all believers. I am thankful that you all have true, genuine, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that the Lord has allowed my family and has allowed me to minister to such a committed family of Christ. I'm thankful that He's allowed us to minister to this body of Christ. How do I know that your faith in Jesus Christ is real? How do I know that? And maybe you've even asked yourselves that same question. How do you know that your faith in Jesus Christ is real? Have you ever asked yourselves that? I mean, can I really be sure? And if you have ever wondered that, if you've ever wondered if you are truly saved, if you've ever wondered if your faith in Jesus Christ is legitimate, Paul gives us here in these verses two proofs of genuine saving faith right here in verse 15 so that you can be absolutely sure that your faith is real. First of all, I want you to see that we know that your faith is real because you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You hear that? We know that your faith is real because you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, it is important that we understand that people who are truly saved acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is who? Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One proof that you are saved is that you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's one proof that you are saved. Now, by saying that you confess with your mouth, we're not just talking about a simple act of forcing these words across your lips. There's no saving virtue in paying lip service to Jesus Christ. There's no saving virtue in that. What Paul is saying is that the one who believes in his heart and the one who confesses with his mouth, he is the one whose actions or the words of his mouth match the conviction or the belief of his heart. Did you get that? He says, if you believe, your actions will reflect what you claim to believe. He's saying that the one who has conviction in his heart, who has belief deep in his heart, from that, from that conviction is born action and is birth movement and action. 
You see, it's easy for you to go around saying that you believe something, but until your action or your works reflect the fact that you actually believe it, it means absolutely nothing. Did you know that? I mean, what does James say? James says, until your action, until your works reflect what you claim to believe or your faith, then your faith is what? Your faith is dead. He says, what use is it? If you claim to have faith, but you don't have any action that is commensurate with your faith, what's the point? Why even bother? I think that in our church tradition, we sometimes get this wrong. Let me share with you what I mean by that. How many of you have ever heard someone ask the question, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you ever heard that? How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, I remember the day that I invited Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Do you remember that? Have you ever heard that before? I made Jesus the Lord of my life. I can remember the day that I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Friends, listen to me. We need to understand. It is very important that we understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. You do not make Jesus Christ Lord. He is already Lord. God has made Him Lord. Whether you like it or not, He is Lord. Whether you confess it or not, He is Lord. You do not make Him Lord. God has already done that. The problem then is you either confess it now and you submit to His rule in your life or you don't confess it now and at some point down the road, at the time of judgment, you just like all of creation will be forced to confess it according to Philippians 2 verse 10 that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is who? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus Christ is Lord right now. And those people who claim to have been saved by Him will publicly confess it with their mouths and they will willingly submit to His rule in their lives. you get that? So if you claim to have saving faith in Jesus Christ, but you insist on ruling your own life rather than submitting to the will and the purpose of God as it is revealed to you in the pages of Scripture, I want you to know that you have legitimate reason to wonder if you truly are saved. The second test of authenticity of your faith in verse 15 is your love toward all the saints. I want you to see this. This is a tough one. This is a really tough one. But the truth is that a Christian does not choose for himself whom he loves. A Christian does not get to choose for himself whom he will love. It doesn't say, well, I love this believer, but I don't love that one. That's not what a true Christian says. That's not what a true believer says. You see, genuine believers have love, according to verse 15, toward all of the saints. Not some of them, toward all of them. When you love Christ, you love all of those who are in Christ, don't you? If they are in Christ, how can you not love them? And you see this principle at work in your own families, don't you? Let me give you an example of that. In the Harms family, it's a package deal. I can tell you that in my family, it's a package deal. And I can tell you that if you want to be close to me, you aren't going to do it by saying that you hate one of the people in my family. You're not going to get there by saying that you hate somebody in my family. You see, they are important to me, and I love them. And if you love me, you have to love each of them. You don't get to choose one or the other and say that I love this one, but I hate that one. If you love me, you have to love everybody in my family, each and every one. And that's the way it is, my friends, for the church. If you love Jesus Christ, you will love those people whom he loves. That's just how it works. No one who ever claimed to hate someone in my family is ever going to be close to me. And the same is true of the church and other believers. The same is true of Jesus Christ. 
You will love those for whom He gave up His body. You will love those for whom He made the ultimate sacrifice if you love Jesus Christ, won't you? But I want you to know that there's more to it than that. And that verse where Paul says that you will love those who are in the body of Christ, you know what verb he uses for the word love? He uses the verb agape. Do all of you remember what agape is? Agape is the love of the will. It's the love of sacrifice. It's the, the love of willful and deliberate and purposeful sacrifice. And so what he's saying is if you love Christ, you're sac- you will sacrifice your own will and you will sacrifice your own desire to bless and to honor the people of the church body. You're going to give up the things that you want to make the people sitting next to you happy. Did you know that? That's a tough one, isn't it? I want to ask you, as you think back to the church body, can you ever think of people who have been selfish? Can you ever think of people who are not willing to make sacrifice because of something that someone next to them needs? And yet they claim to love Jesus Christ. But the Word says, if you love Me, you will love and you will sacrifice for all of those who are in Me. You will sacrifice for all of those who are Mine. It's the agape. It's the love of the will. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further for you. I want to take you to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. And I want to read this. I want you to see this. This is so important. If anyone says... I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a what? Is that pretty cut and dry? If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love whom? His brother. So this is a good test for the authenticity of your faith. Listen to me. If you say that you love God, and at the same time you have someone in the church family that you hate or dislike, I want you to understand that you are bringing reason for us to question whether you are actually saved according to the Word of God, aren't you? I mean, what does it say? It says if you love God and at the same time you hate your brother or other believers, the question then comes to our minds, are you saved? And I think if you take a look at 1 John here, I think the answer according to him is very clear, isn't it? What's the answer? The answer is no, probably you aren't. In fact, John says not only are you not saved, he takes it a step further, and he says not only are you not saved, you're a liar. You're lying about it. And so I'm so thankful that all of you are believers. I'm so thankful that I can see it in your lives. I'm thankful that you have true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, I felt convicted in my heart that I need to develop this new habit. I felt convicted deep in my heart that I need to develop a new habit. I want you to know that, as I said earlier, I pray for you often, so the conviction in my heart is not just that I pray for you, But the conviction of my heart is in the content of my prayer. The conviction has been in the content of my prayer. Let me show you what I saw that has challenged me so much this week. What is it that I've begun to pray? Take a look at verse 17 in chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And we're going to stop right there. Do you know what the problem was with my understanding of the slope-intercept concept? Do you know what my problem was with y equals mx plus b? You see, I understood the concept intellectually. I understood it intellectually, but it hadn't made its way to the enlightening of my heart. It hadn't made its way to the bottom of my heart where it actually influenced and changed my life. It was intellectual knowledge that hadn't reached the point of enlightening my heart. It hadn't made it to the practical application part of my understanding. That's what the problem was with it. I could plug in the numbers if I had to. 
But I couldn't make it work in my life. In the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians, we have all been through a lot of really hard-hitting theological truth, haven't we? We've been through a lot of hard-hitting theological truth, and it, it declares for us our value and our resources as we are in Christ. But I want you to understand, it is not enough for you to have an intellectual understanding of the truth. It is not enough for you to have just a simple intellectual understanding of all of the concepts that we have come to understand over the last 14 verses. And so my prayer for you this week, the prayer that has been challenging my heart, is that the spirit of wisdom and knowledge of verse 17 would drive the truth that we have been teaching to you deeply into your hearts, that your hearts may be enlightened by the word of truth. Do you see that? My prayer is that you may own and that you may understand deeply in your hearts the practical implications of your great wealth and your great holiness and your great purity before God, positionally speaking. That's my prayer for you. My prayer is that He would drive it deep into your hearts, that God would plant those truths so deeply into your hearts that your action and that your practice would be shaped and molded by your understanding. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for you this week, and I want you to know that it's going to be my prayer for you every day moving forward that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that the truth would be driven deeply into your hearts. Now, there's something really important that we need to understand in verses 17 and 18. I want you to know that the keys that unlock the rest of this passage for us are found right here in verses 17 and 18. And so I want to help you understand this concept of the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. Sometimes Paul's words can be a little bit heavy and hard to follow, but I want you to understand this concept of the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. Now, All of us know that understanding comes from God, don't we? We can agree to that. Understanding comes from God. So we know that He's the source of all understanding. And we know that we receive understanding through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that illuminates truth and enlightens our minds. But I want you to take a look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and He gives us revelation. And where does it say that He does that? It says that He does that in the knowledge of Him. And that is God. So he does it in the knowledge of God. Now, where is it that we have our understanding? Look again at verse 18. It says, the eyes of our what? The eyes of our hearts. We have understanding in the eyes of our hearts. Listen, in my family, we all often say, (laughs) we often say, I love you with all my heart. I love you with all of my heart. Or I mean this from the very bottom of my heart. I love you. What does that mean? I mean it with all of my heart. My band teacher used to tell me when I was in high school about a particular piece of music. He'd say, Scott, play it again, and this time put your heart into it. This time, give it a little bit of heart. I think that's pretty common in our culture, isn't it? You hear that a lot. You hear it in love songs all the time. I love you with all my heart. You see, because for us, the heart is the bed of emotion, isn't it? So what my band teacher was saying is, Scott, play it again, and this time do it with some feeling. This time give it a little bit of emotion. Give it a little bit of heart. Put a little something into it. And when you say to your children, I love you with all of my heart, you're saying, I love you with all of my emotion. Everything that is in me is committed to loving you. It's all of my feeling. It's all of my heart. It's all of my emotion. That's how it is for us, isn't it? Isn't that how it works in America? But I want you to know that years ago, that's not how it worked. And especially that was true of the Hebrews. They didn't talk like that. In fact, when they wanted to convey a message of feeling, it was a feeling that was deep in their 
bowels. That's where they had feeling. It was deep in their bowels. It was deep in their stomach. That makes sense, though, when you think about it. Don't tell your sweetie, I love you with all my bowels. I just want you to know that it doesn't translate well today. But listen, if you get into a relationship-ending fight or something that is threatening your very relationship with your sweetie, where do you feel that emotion? Where do you feel that? It's in your gut, isn't it? Don't you feel it right in your stomach? It feels like there's a hole that goes all the way through your stomach. It just ties you in knots. It causes you to have all kinds of problems eating and everything else. It, it ties you up. It's in your stomach. The very first time you went away from home, if you're like me, for an extended period of time, you were homesick, and where did you feel that? Did you feel it in your heart? Did you feel it in your chest? No, you felt it in your stomach. You felt it in your gut. You felt it in your bowels. But we don't talk like that. That's how they used to talk. You don't ever want to tell your sweetie, my bowels are moved for you. It's just word to the young people. Don't say that. But listen, at the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, that's how they talked. That was how they did it. You see, that was where all the emotion was for the, for, the, for the Hebrews. It was in their bowels. It was in their stomach. That was the bed of emotion. And the Greek word for that was splanknon. It was in their splanknon. Now, there are many places in the New Testament where I could show this to you, but I'm going to take you to 1 John. I'm going to show you one example of this, and then we're going to move on. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods, and he sees his brother in need... Yet he closes his heart, this is splanknon, so he closes his bowels against him. How does God's love in ab abide in him? So it's splanknon, it's the bowels there that's translated heart. So listen to this. How can you claim that you have the love of God and see a fellow believer in need and not be emotionally moved and not be emotionally challenged to help this man? So splanknon is the emotion, it's with a feeling, it's what's in your gut, it's the feeling that comes from the very depths of your being in your, in your splankna, in your emotion. But there's another word that is translated as heart. And it's the word that we see here in verse 18. It's the word cardia. And you all know what the cardia is. It's where we get our word cardiac. It's the heart. But listen, the cardia was different to the ancient Jew. I want you to see what happens in the cardia. What does Proverbs 23 say? As a man thinketh in his heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What is it that Jeremiah says in chapter 17 is deceitful and desperately wicked? What is it? It's the heart. The heart of man is deceitful. The heart of man is desperately wicked. It's the heart. It's the mind of man. It's the thinking of man. It's his understanding. It's not his emotion. It's his thinking. It's his mind. And so Paul was praying for the Ephesians here. And my prayer for you, I want you to get this, is that the eyes of your understanding will be opened. It's that the eyes of your understanding will get to your minds and help you to get your minds around the deep truths that you have learned over the last 14 verses. But I want to show you something else. You remember in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had resurrected, there were a couple disciples who were on their way to Emmaus, a small town. And as they were walking along, Jesus suddenly showed up and was with them. Now you remember that these disciples were disciples of Jesus Christ. I mean, they'd been with Him for three years, day in and day out. They listened to Him teach. They saw how He lived. They listened to all these things. But you know what? Those men didn't get it. 
They didn't get it. They had been with him all of this time, but they did not get it. It hadn't sunken down into their hearts. You see, they had all of the information, but it was like the slope-intercept concept. It was there, the information was there, but it hadn't made it all the way down into their hearts or into their minds or into their understanding. And as they walked along then, the resurrected Jesus shows up and he begins explaining Scripture to them. And I want you to see what happened in verse 32. Look what they said. They said to each other, did our what? Did our hearts, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he did what? While he opened the Scriptures. Did our hearts, did our minds not just burn within us as he walked along the roads with us and opened the Scriptures? Which word do you think they used for hearts? Cardia. It's their understanding. It was their minds. And what they were saying is their minds and their understanding were on fire and their minds and their understanding just burned within them as the truth finally hit pay dirt. The truth after all of these years had finally hit its mark and now they were just burning with excitement. They owned the truth now. It had made its way all the way deep into their understanding. It had made its way all the way into their minds. And what we've given you over the last four weeks is a lot of information, isn't it? I've given you a lot of information, and now it is the job of the Holy Spirit to take what you have been taught and to make it alive and to make it burn in your understanding. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to set your hearts on fire with your understanding of the Word of God. And that's my prayer for you. That's what I've been praying about for you. That your hearts would come alive. That your understanding would be on fire with the Word of God. That the truth that you have preached to you every week will be driven deep into your minds, deep into your hearts, and that it will take root and it will burn inside of you and it will work its way from the inside to the outside and it will catch fire of all of the people who come into contact with you. That's my prayer for you. I want you to know that there's a trend in churches today that I find troubling and it's the trend to deliberately appeal to the splanknon. It's the trend to deliberately appeal to the emotion rather than to the cardia or to the understanding. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Churches today are designing their message to appeal to the guts. They want to design their message to appeal to the emotion rather than appealing to the cardia and to the understanding. Listen to me. It is in the mind which change is affected bringing men to repentance. Did you know that? It is in the mind where you must find change to bring you to salvation. The human mind must purpose to come to Jesus Christ. And so we appeal to the mind of man by presenting him the truth of the Scripture. We appeal to man's mind to believe the gospel message and to be saved. We appeal to man's mind to believe the gospel message. And we appeal to his mind to encourage him to repent and turn toward Jesus Christ. We don't appeal to his emotion. We appeal to his mind. You see, it's an act of the human will. It's an act of the human mind to turn from your sin and to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's an act of the human will to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And it is an act of the human will to yield control of your life to Jesus Christ. And that's what brings salvation. Do you see it? It's an act of your will. It's an act of your mind. Not your emotion, not your stomach. I want you to know that it's not an emotionally charged, dimly lit peel with smoke machines, sad stories, and a recited prayer at the end of service that brings people to salvation. It's not that. It's only the gospel message of Jesus Christ confronting the human mind 
and the human will and bringing conviction of sin that is the power of God unto salvation. And we will not be ashamed to preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Believe it with your mind, friends. Listen to me. Believe it with your mind. Believe it with your will. And deliberately, willfully, choose to turn from your self-guided life and submit to the will of God as presented in Scripture, and you will be saved. That's it. Exercise your mind. Choose not to do that, and you'll face eternal judgment. I'm just telling you that's the way it works. We do not despise the emotion. We realize that God has made us as passionate and emotional people. We know that, but we don't allow our splanknon to be our interpreter of Scripture. We allow our cardia, we allow our minds to be confronted. We allow our minds to be challenged as our hearts are transformed. And then our splanknon will overflow with praise. And our splanknon will overflow with worship for Him who has saved us. And then your worship is even more sweet, isn't it? Our passion and our emotion flow out of our deeply rooted burning and our deeply rooted understanding. That's where it comes from. And what is it that Paul wants us to understand? Take a look at verses 18 to 23, and I'll move quickly. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His, or seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know what that is? You know what you just read? That is God's plan of salvation. That's what that is. That's God's plan of salvation. Listen, his plan through the blood of Jesus Christ is to take you, to take a sinner like you and make you positionally pure and without fault before God himself. That's his plan. That's what it's all about. His plan is to take you, a sinner, who's practically impure, and adopt you into the family, and to make you a member of the family, and to lavishly bathe you in the riches of an inheritance of righteousness. That's his plan. That's what he's talking about. And all of this happens through the immeasurable power of God. It happens through the same power, he says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It happens through the same power that established Jesus as ruler over all things. Listen, it is that same power which he uses to work in your salvation and your adoption into his family. It's that same power. And it happens as you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then through the Holy Spirit, that power comes alive in your lives and it transforms you. And it drives deeply into your hearts, deeply into your understanding, the burning desire and the burning passion for the Word of God. I want to tell you that I believe that I can see that God through the Holy Spirit is driving the truth of His Word deep into the hearts of the people at Root River Church. Do you know that? I believe that He's driving His Word of truth deep into the minds and the understanding of those of you who are here. I want you to know that I'm often stopped by people who will tell me that there is working in their hearts a new hunger and a new passion for the Word of God. I know that there are many of you who are getting together. Several people this week have told me this. That they're getting together on their own with other believers and they're studying the Scripture, they're studying the Word of God. And they, they have told me that there is a renewal in their minds that is happening. There is a renewal in their minds for a deep understanding of the Word of God. And I can see that that's true. I can see that. 
We have people who are just getting together and studying the Word of God, trying to uncover the deep truths of His Word. We have people who are being moved by the Holy Spirit to participate in prayer ministry, the starting point ministry, beginning their weeks with prayer for direction and the will of God to be revealed to them as they go through their, their week, that God would reveal His will to the church body. We have people who are coming to Root River Church who are saying that we want to be challenged in our cardia. We want to be challenged in our hearts, in our understanding, in our minds. We have people who are saying that to us. And I can clearly see that your hearts are burning. I can clearly see that there is a desire for understanding and there is a thirst and a hunger for the Word of God and that there is a hunger and a thirst for His righteousness. I can see that at work. And I want you to know, listen closely, it's refreshing, it's renewal, it's revival, and it's awakening your hearts And it's an awakening that is happening right here in this church body. We don't want caravans of people flocking to feel something in their splankna. That's not what we want. We don't want caravans of people coming here and busloads of people coming here so that they can get something, some stimulation in their splankna. That's not what we want. What we want is just one person at a time to say, Lord, I want to please You. Lord, I want to honor You with my life. Lord, I want to serve You. Would You please make Your Word come alive to me? Let Your Word come alive to the eyes of my understanding that I can stand on the deep truth of Your Word. That's what we want, isn't it? Listen to me. My prayer for you is that your hearts are soft and pliable and the Word of God takes deep root in the depths of your understanding. That you own it. That you stand on it. Not like the shallow intellectual understanding that I had of the slope-intercept concept. It's not that. I want you to have a deep, meaningful understanding of the Word of God. Not the one that's here today and gone tomorrow, but I want that deep and meaningful understanding that shapes the very core of your character and it shapes the very core of your spiritual lives. Father, I thank You. God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, You the Father of glory, I pray that You will give these people a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray that You will enlighten their hearts, that they may know what is the hope to which You have called them. I pray that You would help them to know the riches of their inheritance in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that You would help them to understand the immeasurable greatness of Your power toward us who believe according to the work of Your great might that You worked in Jesus Christ when You raised Him from the dead and when You seated Him at Your right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. I pray that You would work that in their lives their hearts burn, their minds burn for an understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, drive it deeply. They can go there and dig it out and they can go there and be shaped by the word of God.